online, on digital and on FM. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome to the 7th Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city in South Cambridgeshire. The show about all things environmental in our area. Episode 25, The Ox Cam Arc. Today we're investigating the Ox Cam Arc, Whitehall's ambitious plan to develop an arc of land between the cities of Oxford and Cambridge, taking in parts of Oxfordshire, Northamptonshire, Bedfordshire and Cambridgeshire. The ARC received government support in the November 2017 budget. And the original plan, proposed by the National Infrastructure Commission, stressed building on the success of the two university cities to drive further economic growth, and included plans for an Oxcam Expressway, now cancelled, an East-West Railway, a consultation for which closes on the 9th of June, and a million new homes across the Ark. This past February, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government released its plans to create a spatial framework for the Ark and committed to undertaking, and I quote, wide public engagement to shape a vision for the area through a consultation in summer 2021. So, listeners, are you ready for that? To help you, we've got two important interviews to share with you in this episode. First up, recorded in March, just before the local government elections, we invited Councillor Bridget Smith, leader of South Cam's District Council and environmental lead for the Oxcam Arc Steering Group, plus Richard Astle, Chair of Natural Cambridgeshire, to talk about the environmental goals of the project. Working together, they have helped to get the Natural Cambridgeshire flagship plan of doubling nature in Cambridgeshire adopted as a goal across the arc as a whole. This seems like good news. But in our second interview, Professor David Rogers, Secretary of the No Oxcam Expressway Group, argues that despite these good intentions, the arc is likely to be an environmental catastrophe. We also invited three local organisations to contribute their thoughts. First up, here's our guest interviewer, Lara Potter, an engineer and environmental consultant for Arcadis, with Councillor Bridget Smith and Richard Astle. The Oxcam Arc is based on the premise that this area is a driver of the national economy and therefore needs more growth. Bridget, why invest more in an already successful area? and How will that help address regional inequality? Well, that's a really interesting question. So in Cambridgeshire, we had an independent economic review, which is called the CPIER, Spear Report. And that quite clearly showed that just because you have been growing, just because there are lots of new jobs, just because there's more and more companies setting up business, doesn't mean that you will continue on that trajectory. So what it did indicate very clearly was if you don't invest in regions like ours, actually things, they won't even plateau. They'll start ski sloping off and we will see a big, big downturn. And so with some of the major employers we have, they are in our area because there's lots in it for them. The workforce, the links with all the other similar companies, you know, particularly when you're talking about the sort of biotech stuff or all these fabulous people who've been leading the way with COVID vaccines. 
if we start making life difficult for them, if suddenly their employees can't afford to live here because our houses are so expensive, if their employees are arriving at work completely stressed out because they've spent two hours in a traffic jam breathing in poisonous fumes, then they will think twice about being here. So they won't move to Hartlepool or to Carlisle, they'll move abroad. So we have some serious issues on connectivity, transport, on housing in our area. And unless we sort those out, we will see a downturn in our economy and we won't have these high value jobs that we all of us want for our children, never mind ourselves. So if you think of the arc as an engine for the economy, you've got to keep on providing fuel for that engine, otherwise it will stop working. Let's remember that there are large parts of the arc where there aren't enough jobs and we do have serious economic inequalities and poverty. Where I think nature can play its part here is just making people's places better places to live. Very much we need to focus on urban greening, the future of our parks, the future of pocket parks, trees in cities, so we can provide far more shade. And we're going to need that as climate change comes forward. Uh, we can't afford to have inner cities just a glow with hot spots because we haven't got the greenery there to absorb the heat. So we can improve that quality of life, better air, better water, more places to just walk and be in nature, be with nature. And if I can just go off on a tangent here, What's really important is that we don't see all of this through the lens of economic growth and development. There is an absolute revolution that we need to happen in our agricultural landscape if we're going to get this right. And that's one that farmers and landowners will benefit from too. We have to get back to restoring the hedgerows that have been ripped out out of large parts of our countryside. We have to get back to putting back in ponds and wet areas of fields and compensating landowners and farmers for that. Now, the government, this is a separate agenda, but for me, it's not at all separate, is looking at new regimes for agriculture and for payments to farmers, which will be based on these services, i.e. providing services for society, such as clean air, clean water, access. I really feel we ought to be tying these two things together so that the ARC is addressing agriculture as well as economic growth and looking at landscapes and how landscapes thrive and how people thrive in landscapes. Said to Bridget once, I'd much rather they started this by saying central England doesn't have a national park, so we're going to create one. It's going to go from Oxford to Cambridge. And along the way, we might need to fund that with a bit of infrastructure. So we have these plans for development, including major infrastructure, and it's a large area as well. How can we improve biodiversity, reduce our carbon footprint, protect our agriculture when we also have this enormous pressure for growth? And perhaps how do we double nature in that context? Richard, maybe a question for you. I think the short answer to that is we have to find a way to balance those things. They're not either or. That's just too simplistic an approach and it doesn't work. I struggle with this concept of growth sometimes. I'm not an economist and, and, and also I'm not a big believer that government can actually plan that well. Some of these things will happen organically. But Bridget is right about the importance of making sure we maintain prosperity in our area. And actually, this is where I think the two things go hand in hand, because much as the companies she's been talking about want to see a skilled workforce, they want to see affordable homes, good infrastructure, and they also want to see good leisure. We also know that they increasingly want to see a high-class environment, nature and nature recovery, 
and they're being told this by their employees. So if we are going to get the economic bit right, we have to get the environmental bit right too. And the answer is, I think, partly about harnessing that public mood and that public goodwill. So the business itself actually wants to make this happen and makes it happen through how it brings forward housing developments or road schemes, but also by, I think, looking at land use generally. The spatial strategy is not just about where do the houses go, which is, unfortunately the planning system has for too long looked at it that way. Spatial strategy has to be about where does the nature go? How does it fit in? Now, I'm going to pause a little bit there because this isn't about nature lives there and people live here. To me, they have to be integrated. And I think that's about how we plan this spatially, how we make sure that that integration happens, but also that we identify, set aside land for major habitat restoration, whether that's wetlands and waterways that capture and store water and ensure clean water, whether that's woodlands or grasslands or meadows, places where nature can flourish and where people can flourish in and with nature. So the decision of the ARC Secretariat to have a spatial strategy that identifies environment opportunity areas as well as where infrastructure should go, I think is a huge breakthrough. I've not seen that done with such clarity before. I think it offers us an opportunity now to actually plan out how we deliver nature on a spatial scale. Thank you, Richard. Bridget, I wonder whether we could delve a little bit deeper into one of the issues actually that Richard's just raised around water for nature. The east of England, as we know, is a water-stressed area with predictions of decreasing rainfall in the summertime and increasing rainfall in the wintertime. I think by 2050, there are some predictions that one in 10 homes will be at risk of flooding. I'm really interested in understanding how a plan like this really mitigates these risks in the longer term. So a plan like this can only mitigate it if you come up with a way of dealing with water on a regional basis. So we know that in the Greater Cambridge area, and that's South Cambridgeshire and Cambridge City, we have serious limitations of water availability. So we currently have planning permission awarded for, I think, 33,000 new homes already in the current local plans between us. We can't, in all honesty, give many more homes permission with the current situation with the water availability. And yet just over in Huntingdonshire, they've had terrible flooding problems in the last few months. And as a little district council, we can't solve those problems. But the advantage of planning on this much wider geography is that suddenly there's the potential to do so. It needs big investment and it needs all partners working together. So we now have an organisation called Water Resources East, which are all the water companies getting together to put together a bigger plan for how you get water from a point where there's lots of it to somewhere where there isn't very much of it, like my area, and how you do proper interventions that stop the tragedies we've seen of people's houses being flooded and the threat to life that means. So I welcome the art from that point of view because it does allow us to attract the significant amounts of funding this needs. And 
I don't know what the solution is going to be to the water shortages. It could be, I suppose, that you pipe water in from somewhere that's wet. It could be that you build new reservoirs somewhere where there's the space to do it. And I'm pretty sure I don't have space in South Cambridgeshire, and they certainly don't in Cambridge City. But that doesn't mean that one of our neighbouring areas has the capacity to build a new reservoir that will help us. So we have to be working together and we have to start acknowledging that these borders we have between districts and between counties are actually meaningless and hinder our ability to solve these major strategic problems. Speaking of infrastructure, you've mentioned the railway line and the route selection for East West Rail has proceeded ahead of the strategic plan and the spatial plan for the arc as a whole. Presumably, rail infrastructure isn't really important element of the arc. And I wonder how these two things are playing together. Perhaps you could help us understand the importance of these major transportation infrastructure projects. So in Cambridge, certainly within the Greater Cambridge area, we have an infrastructure deficit. So South Cambridge has seen considerable growth in terms of housing over the last 10, 15 years since I've been a councillor. Camborne, the new town at North Stowe, we're building a, a new town at Waterbeach as well. And the transport connectivity hasn't kept pace with the development. So Camborne, where my office is, 5,000 households who are car reliant. They've got barely any buses. I don't think you can get by bus to the station in St. Neots, which is actually cycling distance, but I don't think I'd cycle along that road, quite honestly, because it's far too dangerous. So East-West Rail will help to address that infrastructure deficit we've got, and then we can start driving what we call, to use the jargon, modal shift, getting us out of our cars and onto good public transport, which has to be affordable as well. And that's another question altogether about how jolly expensive rail travel is. But you know, it has to be affordable and reliable and frequent. And then those of us who have no choice but travel by car will start making other choices. And hopefully we get to the point where we actually start to reduce our car ownership. I wonder, Richard, whether you can sort of help us understand a little bit more about the balance between creating that modal shift to be able to produce good quality public transport and the infrastructure that goes with that and the doubling nature agenda and how those two things might work together. So perhaps the opportunities and challenges that you see from a nature point of view when we're installing these major infrastructure projects. Yeah, thank you. I think I think that's a critical question, actually, because at the moment our infrastructure is inadequate. But every time we hear about a road plan or a rail plan, we know there will be impacts on the environment, particularly on nature, because a rail line just cuts across the country, doesn't it? And for most biodiversity, that causes a problem. Not everything can fly. So all of a sudden, you've created this barrier in the natural environment, and a lot of mammals and a lot of insects can't get across that barrier safely. What nature needs to flourish is the ability to move around the landscape. So there is an inherent problem with roads and railways. And this is where we have to look to innovative engineering and thinking to make sure that as and when we put that infrastructure in, we do so in a way that avoids those barriers being created, whether that's by tunnels or whether that's by bridges. But actually, what we should be looking for is all infrastructure should be bringing, and I'm going to use some jargon here, the phrase we use is net biodiversity gain, or what I call more nature. So essentially, every project should be challenged. How are you helping double nature? 
That would be my ambition, not just net biodiversity gain, which is a very difficult bargain to explain, but whether you're putting in a housing development, a railway line, or a new road, I'm not going to argue about the principles of each of those things. But when they do them, if they get permission, then they should show what is being done to create much more nature-friendly habitats. Actually, I think we do have to lobby hard with government on this because nationally significant infrastructure, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is currently exempt from that net biodiversity gain principle. And that's just nonsense. Just picking up on what Richard has said about biodiversity net gain, because we know this is absolutely vital and we have to move on from the olden days when we used to talk about mitigating from damage to a point where we're talking about enhancement and improvement and creating more space, which absolutely ties in with the whole doubling nature vision. One of the parts of the environment principles that my working group has put forward is that we deliver 20% biodiversity net gain as a minimum. Now, what I'm told by people who know know far more about it than me is that if you just go for 10%, actually, that can be just virtually nothing. So you've got to be way more ambitious. And so our expectation is that all interventions within the arc or across the arc, the summation of them will be delivering at least 20% biodiversity net gain. And when we talk about doubling nature, Richard said a lot of us, our ambition is to deliver more than that. So in South Cambridgeshire, I've got fewer trees here than just about anywhere else in the country. And if I double nature in South Cambridgeshire, that takes me up to the national average. Well, that's not good enough. So I want to do lots more than that because I want South Cambridgeshire to be a place where everybody has access to what is best and most beautiful in well-managed, sustainable, open green spaces. And that plays back into the economic arguments about making South Cambridgeshire a place where people want to come and do business as well Mm. as live. So one of the key pillars of the strategic framework for the Oxcam Arc is consultation. Bridget, what's the plan to enable people to really engage in this vision and the role of local government and environmental groups? So there is no doubt that you know the way government are approaching the Oxford Cambridge Arc is completely different to the way that they have approached anything anywhere else in the country ever. Everything that they put out in the public domain says very strongly that they are going to be engaging fully with residents, with people like me in local government, people like Richard, you know, leading highly influential NGOs. So the narrative is all there. However, it would be remiss of me not to add my own resources into that consultation to really get down to the granular level of what the communities within South Cambridgeshire want. And it's been an ongoing narrative with all the leaders of all the councils across the arc about, you know, well, what's in it for the people already living here? And it's all very well to say to people, well, you know, art's a marvellous thing. So you're going to get a great big railway and you're going to get lots and lots of houses. And everybody throws up their hands in horror and says they don't want it. So that was part of the rationale for really getting the environment much, much higher up the agenda so that in the government's own documents, it has top billing along with the economies. And actually, 
both those things demonstrate what's in it for the people already living there. But we have to start breaking that down in terms of, does this mean that there will be an art-wide forest? Does it mean that we will restore all the waterways around Bedford? What does it mean to air quality? And that sort of plays into the whole sort of quality of life. So we have some significant inequalities, even in Cambridgeshire. So we need to have a really good understanding about what is life like now and what can we do as part of the ARC that will allow people to have better jobs, allow them to breathe cleaner air, allow them to walk and cycle in beautiful green space, which isn't currently available, allow them to experience far greater variety of wildlife. We need to really start nailing down what we can do that will make life better for the people who are here now before we even start to think about the people who may be living here in the future. My job is to hold them to account and make them live up to these promises and make sure that the voices of my residents are being heard. And it's not going to be easy. I mean, I've talked to East West Rail about building in 20% biodiversity net gain. And interestingly, they told me that they would have liked to have done that on other parts of the line. And they weren't allowed to because legally, they're not allowed to buy additional land to do this offsetting. So they can't take control of more land than the actual footprint of the railway. So that then goes back to government to say, OK, government, you know, you're not allowing them legally to do this. Sort it out so that they then can buy so many thousand hectares in order to plant a forest or create some fabulous grassland or something like that. So often the will is there, but the mechanism and the means isn't, never mind the money. Richard, I wondered whether you wanted to come in on that. Well, I think only to violently agree. I've been uh, an avid conservationist all of my life, and I've seen many false dawns before where we thought something was really going to change. I've never been as optimistic as I am at the moment because so much of policy has changed. There's been, been, uh, to use Bridget's phrase, a sort of modal shift, including on the ARC and and the latest documents on the ARC. The environment is in paragraph one, not paragraph 23C. Now, however, and there is a however, I've still not seen that translate into change on the ground. And this is the bit where I think we now really need in the next 12 to 18 months to see that change on the ground, even to unlock some of the purse strings. The agenda that we sort of passionately espouse at Natural Cambridgeshire, it's really not expensive, but we don't have any budget. And this is the thing, when you think about how much money is already committed to what I call hard infrastructure, where is the money for the soft infrastructure? So on the one hand, I am very optimistic. I've never seen the policy framework look so strong for nature as it does at the moment, but I'm still not seeing the actual commitment of resource to it, and that has to happen. And now let's hear from Transition Cambridge. I'm Nicola Terry, and I'm from Transition Cambridge. Transition Cambridge is a community response to climate change and sustainability in general. We do things like circular economy stuff and community-supported agriculture schemes, all sorts of stuff, and energy saving as well. So my concerns about this Oxford-Cambridge arc are, yes, it's growth, but is it the right sort of growth and is it in the right place? The east of England, southeast, is, is really good for generating GDP, but that isn't what we should be necessarily aiming for, and there are constraints. There are critical sustainability constraints in this part of the country. I'm particularly concerned about water supply, 
uh, which the whole of east of England is the driest part of the country. And we've already had major damage to rivers and streams in the area through droughts. So that's a big problem. And also just densification, urbanisation, green spaces. Green spaces are critical for our well-being. It can be done nicely, but it very often isn't. And I might add, it may be that the growth so far has been in this part of the country, but we are going through a green transition. Where are the new jobs going to be? The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio. Thanks to Nicola Terry of Transition Cambridge for that comment. The first of three from local groups that we'll be hearing in this episode. So in the first part of our show, South Cam's District Council leader, Bridget Smith, who is also the environmental lead for the Oxcam Arc Steering Group, and Richard Astell, Chair of Natural Cambridgeshire, gave us a hopeful and even inspiring view of the environmental progress which they thought could be made through the Oxcam Arc development. Not everyone feels so optimistic, however. Residents of South Cambridgeshire have been feeling anything but inspired over the east-west rail plans to slice through the countryside from Camborne to Cambridge. And our next guest, Professor of Ecology David Rogers, has been giving hard-hitting lectures on the theme of the Oxcam Arc as an environmental catastrophe. We put some of the same questions we'd put to Councillor Smith and Mr Astle to Professor Rogers and got some very different replies. Professor Rogers, you've been campaigning against the Arc for some time and were part of a group which contributed to the cancellation of one of its infrastructure elements, the Oxcam Expressway. One of your arguments is that the huge amount of investment in the Arc is not going to decrease inequality on either a local or a national level, but is in fact likely to increase it. Can you explain your argument? Yes, thank you. I think there are several things we agree on. First of all, the infrastructure across all five counties is in decline. In your county, your infrastructure is creaking. In my county, Oxfordshire, for example, there's a £7 billion deficit in infrastructure spending. We need £7 billion just to maintain what we've got. Inequality is increasing across the country and certainly within the arc. For example, a quarter of all Cambridge children and Oxford children live in poverty. And finally, of course, biodiversity is under threat, again, all the way across the arc, but especially in Cambridge and Oxfordshire. The solution to these three problems is presented as the Oxcam Arc and all the development. In my view, all this development will make all three matters much worse rather than better. Let's take uh, infrastructure, for example. The proposal is to increase the total housing stock across the arc by one million extra houses by 2050. Now, in Cambridge's case, that means increasing your entire housing stock by 60%. It involves building houses at twice the rate that you're currently building them for the next 30 years. If your infrastructure is in decline now, what effect does building more houses at twice the current rate going to have upon it? The trouble is, you see, that developers profiting from house building actually leave local taxpayers to foot the bill for essential infrastructure. That's always been the problem that will continue to be a problem with the Oxcam Arc with this level of development. It seems faintly unreal to imagine that 
building extra houses like this will automatically reduce inequality. We know what the cause of inequality are. We should address them directly. We don't need a knox come up to address these problems. For example, the extreme inequality in both our cities is due to the fact that people aren't paid enough and that they have to pay too much for accommodation, for rent or for houses. Our own studies and many others have shown that you don't actually solve the housing crisis by building more houses. It seems slightly paradoxical, but certainly all the studies that have been carried out is building more houses doesn't make them cheaper. The solution to inequality that arises from high rental costs is to build more social houses. And you can read thousands of pages of the Oxfam Art documents. You'll see barely a mention of social housing. So we can and should address the problems of inequality, but the Oxcomark doesn't contain the ingredients to do so. And what about in terms of national inequality? The sort of fundamental bedrock of the Oxcomark, and in fact the prize in all Oxcomark developments, is an increase in economic output of £163 billion per annum by 2050. If you take apart the thinking behind that figure, it's mostly castles built of sand. Only 10% of that £163 billion can be attributed to the agglomeration effect, the effect that is used to justify the whole arc in the first place. And the other 90% is due to the simple assumption that to increase GDP output, put more workers in. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Get more workers, you get a greater GDP. And the other ingredient is, well, over time, the output per worker will almost double. Well, that might happen anywhere. So the advantages which are supposed to be unique to the arc 90% of them will be available anywhere in the country. You could put workers anywhere else in the country and you get more output from that part of the country. You could assume they double their output each over the next 30 years. You get the same output. Only 10% of the benefits of the Oxcomark are due to the agglomeration effect. And those benefits are quite dubious because the agglomeration effect doesn't work on the scale of five counties. Okay, and I just want to ask a clarification question. The figure of a million homes, that comes from the original NIC documentation for the ARC, is that right? That's correct, the National Infrastructure Commission. And it's important to realise that the million houses arises out of the very careful research that the National Infrastructure Commission from people like Cambridge Econometrics that says that this increase in economic output requires a million houses and 1.1 million extra jobs. Thank you. So let's now turn to the environment. So our previous interviewees expressed the argument that in order to get the funding to improve the environment, which will benefit everyone, and in some areas of the ARC is desperately needed, environmental improvement, in order to get that funding, we need to have the development. Do you agree? And if not, where should the money come from? I very strongly disagree. And I'm afraid it's a very dreadful argument because it's actually saying we need to sell nature or sell some of nature in order to save the rest of nature. This is just totally unacceptable. Nature provides us with the oxygen we breathe and the food we eat. Nature is far more important than our economy. We should be spending money just on saving nature now. If you think the economy is more important than nature, try holding your breath whilst you count your money. So what we should be doing, and nature is certainly in decline across the arc, we should, as John Lawton said in Making Space for Nature more than 10 years ago now, we should be spending money on improving nature as we have it at the moment. We shouldn't have to say we will only improve nature at the expense of building on parts of it. 
And my fundamental problem with the Oxcom arc is basically it says no development equals no funds for nature. In other words, there will be nothing for nature unless you allow development in other parts of the same nature. That is just totally unacceptable. And of course, the level of development I mentioned, which is sort of increasing housing stock across five counties by an average of about 80 percent, will do much more harm to nature even than it is in its present state. Okay, and in your talk, you actually make the argument that one of the problems is just concentrating all the development in this area. So you're not anti all growth, but you think it could be spread more across the country. Yes, uh, key to our argument, we are certainly not against growth. But as I said, the growth for the Oxcam arc is about 80% in terms of houses. And just to give you an idea, the National Infrastructure Commission reckons that by 2050, the average increase in the UK household numbers will be 16%. So you have to compare 80% for Cambridge against the national 16%. The Oxcam arc will inflict on your county five times the expected average national growth rate. Or to put it another way, the same Office of National Statistics says to accommodate the 16% of growth of people nationwide by 2050, we'll need simply 3 million more houses. That's 3 million across the entire United Kingdom. If you put 1 million of those 3 million into the Oxcamark area, you're putting one third of all necessary housing growth into less than 5% of the total land area. That's an extraordinary amount of growth in a very, very small part of the UK. And it's a part of the UK which is already rich. So what you're saying is, well, we need to increase the wealth of this part of the nation in order, the claim is, to reduce the inequality of the nation. Wouldn't it be much more sensible and fairer to put the investment in other parts of the nation to reduce the inequality between the Oxcamark area and the rest of the nation? So what is your goal in your new campaign? Your, your first goal was to stop the expressway part of the arc. What is your new goal? Why are you still campaigning? We are campaigning to scrap the arc in its current form, because as I said, in its current form, it implies a huge rate of overdevelopment of an already economically overheated part of the country. It will not reduce inequality. It will strain the infrastructure even more and it will not increase the biodiversity of our area. So we're quite happy for the national rate of growth across the arc, 16%, or even a little bit more, 20%. What we object to is rates of growth of between 80 for your county or over 105% in my county compared to the national average expected in the next 30 years. All right, at the moment, a lot of people in South Cams are feeling a I was going to use the word railroaded, but that was yeah. <laughs> too uh, specific. But they are feeling like the consultation on the East-West Rail has not been very consultative. The lack of consultation of East-West Rail, I'm afraid this applies to absolutely everything across all the arc in all dimensions. There's not been a single public meeting anywhere across the arc uh, ever about Oxclam Arc developments. No ministry, no local district council, no other authority, no local enterprise partnership has held a single meeting with any one of the 3.7 million people who live across the Arc. And can I just point out another thing? In the recent local elections, two champions of the Arc scheme, Mayor James Palmer in Cambridge and Councillor Ian Hudspeth, chair of the Oxfordshire County Council, they both lost their seats entirely because they were promoting growth and their electorate simply said enough. We don't want the level of growth that the Oxcamark is uh, threatening for the region. 
Okay, turning finally to what is possibly the most important part of your campaign, the thinking behind the Oxcam arc idea that we can double nature or even just achieve net gain while having all this development is based on this idea of offsetting, that you take habitat away for a development, but you compensate for that by improving habitat in another area. Now, you heavily critique this approach and you question whether it's even realistic. Can you comment on that? The idea of net gain implies there will be development, right? No development, no net gain. No development, no money for offsetting. So what happens is, let's imagine you've got two fields, exactly the same in terms of vegetation biodiversity. Uh, a builder comes on and wants to build on one field. So there will be a biodiversity loss on that one field where you, where you pour concrete. Now, the net gain principle is to say, well, the biodiversity that you lose on the built field must be added to the unbuilt field. You're effectively shifting the biodiversity yield, if you like, from two fields onto one. Now, you can immediately see the fallacy of that argument, because if I draw the analogy with fishing stocks, you know what happens with fisheries? Every year we take fish from the sea. If every year we take too many fish, the fish stock collapses. What's happening with the net gain argument is that we pretend we're shifting biodiversity onto the second field. We're taking more biodiversity yield from field number two, but we've actually reduced the stock that's giving us the biodiversity because we start off with two fields and we end up with one field. So we're working that one field harder to produce even greater biodiversity gain than we had on the two fields to begin with. The more you work a stock, the more likely you are to diminish that stock until it will collapse. We will be expecting too much of a diminishing area of wildlife to produce our biodiversity gains. So looking at this DEFRA metric, it's, it's quite complicated to explain on the radio. And I do want yes. to encourage people to watch the video of your talk, yes. which yes. I will include the link in the show description, because this is a complicated thing. But yes. but. DEFRA looks at a number of different criteria to determine the sort of biodiversity value of a particular piece of land. Isn't the temptation going to be that if you are building on a piece of land that's already devoid of much biodiversity value, which I think is pretty much the case of, in much of the environment in, in this area of South Cams, then you're actually not going to have to create such a great environment elsewhere because you're not offsetting much in the first place. Well, that will be the case, of course, in the example you give. There's not much biodiversity offset. But if you think of local building sites around your place and certainly around mine, they are threatening uh, not just sites of high biodiversity, but in fact, sites of strategic uh, scientific interest, special scientific interest, SSSIs. We have developments on the Oxfordshire's Greenbelt that are threatening several of those. And I only have to remind you that the destruction that building HS2 is causing we are chopping down ancient woodlands, a type of forest, by the way, in which the UK is uniquely blessed across all of Europe. We're chopping down ancient woodland in the name of development. It is absolutely impossible to offset ancient. You can't do it. It just takes centuries to produce it. Absolutely. And you make the point in your video, which I also want to bring out, that it's not just about the houses. It's about the highways and infrastructure to support those houses which when you put those on a map, go right over the sites that they've identified as important for biodiversity. 
Yes, as Richard Assel mentioned, infrastructure tends to cut across nature recovery networks or areas of biodiversity we would like to preserve. In a sense, we're designing our future on our terms, not on nature's terms. It's quite important we should actually design our buildings and our networks on nature's terms. That is the way to preserve nature and to enhance nature. Quite honestly, putting tunnels under motorways putting bat tiles in roofs, nest boxes or hedgehog highways in buildings is allowing nature to thrive on our terms, not on nature's terms. What is the current stage of the Oxcam Arc development and plan? The Oxcam Arc plans and developments have been happening for the last five or six years at the very least. The current situation is that in February of this year, the government released the Arc Spatial Framework. The Arc Spatial Framework looks at the economy and housing and nature across the arc. It lays out a two-year timetable, at the end of which it will have produced detailed spatial plans. Because in the February document, there's not a single mention of where new towns might go, where nature might be enhanced, where new roads would go. It's a theoretical construct at the moment. I want to have another go at the question I asked you earlier. I asked, what were you hoping to achieve? And what I would like to hear is what your vision for a environmentally, and I hate the word sustainable, an environmentally regenerative arc would look like. Can we forget about the term arc? Let's think about regenerative nature. There are probably too many of us for nature at the moment. So what we've got to do is we've got to support and help nature in its present state. Let's forget about all arc developments. Let's say we have accepted that nature is in a poor state. We've accepted that we will pay money for nature, irrespective of that money coming from building sites. What we need to do is, well, John Lawton said it 10 years ago, bigger, better and more joined up nature. The nature reserves we have, certainly the priority habitat areas across the arc are very, very small. On average, they're about the size of a rugby pitch. You can't get much biodiversity in something the size of rugby. Think of an owl, for example, or a cuckoo. It, it can't survive in that sort of area. However wooded that rugby pitch might be, it's simply not big enough. So we've got to make the nature units bigger. We've got to make them better. So we've got to stop um, polluting them. We've possibly got to stop too much human exploitation of them, too much trampling by people. It's been a problem during COVID. And most importantly of all, we've got to make them joined up. Because one thing that we know about climate change, which is definitely happening, is that the species distributions will have to change. Species will try to track areas of the environment that are their favourite in terms of temperature or rainfall. And those areas will shift about quite dramatically in the next 50 to 100 years. If we make nature more joined up at present, then we have a better chance of preserving what we've got. And of course, making it bigger, we have a better chance of increasing the biodiversity of those sites because we can have bigger animals or more animals or more sustained populations of the existing animals on larger plots of nature rather than smaller plots. So we can do all these things now, we should be doing them now, to improve nature. And where do we get the money for that? Well, John Lawton's asking for a billion a year. It sounds a lot. It's a fraction of 1% of our total GDP output. For an oxygen tank and a food supply, less than 1%? That's a bargain, isn't it? What, in your opinion, is the best strategy that local people can embrace to have an actual say on this level of development? That's an excellent question. It's something that the No Expressway Group is challenged with at the moment. 
I think the first and most important thing is to raise awareness across the arc of what is being threatened or promised for the region. The second is to engage with the people who make these decisions and to challenge them and say, these are your plans. Why not listen to local communities? So I think what we would like to do across the arc is to set up citizens' assemblies. And it's very difficult to arrange these to be democratically representative. This is what we would absolutely have to do but engage citizens' assemblies, talk to them about development, what is proposed, what they would like, and get them to engage with the local authorities. And I must stress that, in fact, it would have to engage with Whitehall as well, because the leaders of the Oxcam Art Plan say it's not a local plan, it's a Whitehall plan. It goes all the way up to numbers 10 and 11 Downing Street. So you need to engage at all levels of government, right up to Downing Street, to say, enough. We're happy with a certain level of development. We don't want too much because it doesn't make any sense in this part of the country and it will destroy many of the things that make our area special. People actually come. They want to settle in Oxfordshire and Cambridge because they are beautiful cities. They're surrounded by beautiful countryside, but not for much longer if we do nothing about it. Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. Hi, I'm William Harold, a founder of the Cambridge Approaches Action Group. We are campaigning for a fair consultation on a northern approach to Cambridge for the new East-West Railway. On the average, CO2 emissions per passenger mile for rail is less than one-tenth that for cars. Choosing a route that maximises usage is therefore much more important even than electrification. East-West Rail Co. agree that a northern route will lead to 200 million higher transport benefits over a southern approach to Cambridge through the provision of a station at North Stowe. This means a larger passenger modal shift from road to rail. 50% of English wheat production occurs within 50 miles of Cambridge. The area is important for UK food security. The railway will damage farmland by breaking up fields, severing access and the effect of uncontrollable vermin on the line on nearby crops. Climate change and sea level rises by 2100 will lead to seawater flooding of the fens to the north of Cambridge. The last such event in 1949 saw farmland out of production for nine years due to the effect of a nematode. If we have to choose, we should protect the higher level farmland to the south of Cambridge. Let's have a fair consultation on a northern approach to Cambridge for the east-west railway. Thanks very much there to William Harold of Cambridge Approaches for his comment on the East-West Rail part of the Oxcam Arc project. And before that, you heard Professor David Rogers from the No Oxcam Expressway Group. Oh, and by the way, the nematode that William Harold of Cambridge Approaches mentioned, I found out, is a type of roundworm. And some can be parasitic towards plants and eat the roots. As always, links to the groups mentioned in this episode will be shown on the 7th Generation show page on the Cambridge 105 Radio website, as well as Facebook and Mixcloud. Our Facebook and Twitter handles are at 7th Gen Cam, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. You can also email us, 7thGeneration at cambridge105.co.uk. For our final community comment on the ARC, We'll hear from the Cambridge Commons, a civil society organisation which is dedicated to raising awareness of and campaigning against the harmful inequality which exists in Cambridge. Peter Zip, a member of the Cambridge Commons Steering Group, wrote the following submission, 
read by our reporter, Sarah Strachan. One of the stated priorities of the Cambridge Commons is, I quote, to draw attention to the absurd cruelty of a housing market that prevents ordinary citizens here from buying or securely renting their own homes, unless their circumstances are so desperate that they qualify for social housing. In regard to the Oxcam Ark, we would like to see all land which becomes available for residential developments in the entire Oxcam Ark offered directly to the public, not to for-profit developers. Selling land to large developers should be the exception, not the rule. Under our current system, property development and construction companies with their deep pockets and truckloads of lawyers snap up all the land as it becomes available for development and then often delay such development for years in anticipation of price rises. The citizen as home buyer does not have any say or influence over the development process until the completed units are offered for sale, at which point their choice is to take it or leave it. This state of affairs encourages lack of competition and rent-seeking behaviour leading to abnormally high prices and substandard quality. This compares unfavourably with other OECD countries where citizens are able to participate at any stage. While access to land is only the first step of the chain, changes are necessary to unlock access to all subsequent stages. We would then see more owner-builders and cooperative community housing schemes and over time a beneficial restructuring of the entire construction industry. This will challenge inequality on at least two fronts access to housing and more equitable opportunities within the construction industry. We have an example of this approach from a community within the proposed ARC already. In 2017, using a large parcel of land vacated by the Ministry of Defence, the Cherwell District Council in Bista made a deliberate decision to sell vacant plots directly to individual owner-builders in the township now known as Graven Hill. This bold move by Cherwell District Council has been very successful and very well received by the public. It has also proven that the concept of selling land directly to the public is feasible and uncomplicated. Unsurprisingly, demand has exceeded supply and while it's too early to objectively measure the impact on inequality, each owner-builder has been able to implement their own choices at a reduced cost, while others on hearing about the scheme ask, why isn't this the norm? We should learn from Cherwell District Council and allow ordinary citizens to participate and benefit from development. Thank you to the Cambridge Commons for submitting that comment on the Oxcam Ark. And it was read there by our reporter Sarah Strachan. Since we interviewed Bridget Smith, the South Cam's District Council leader has said the entire East-West Rail project could yet be scrapped and has demanded more information from the East-West Rail Company on its assessments on both the North and South approaches into Cambridge, and also for further assessment of the project's impacts on the landscape, heritage sites and the area's ecology, plus calling for the project to be fully electric from the start. That's all for today. I'm Nick Skelton, and a big thanks to all the 7th Generation team. Michelle Golder, Sheena Mooney... Sarah Strachan, and our guest interviewer, Lara Potter. Don't forget, for more information on any of the groups you heard from today, check out our page on the Cambridge 105 Radio website, www.cambridge105.co.uk.